God's word in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, reads, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance... A priest was going down that road, and when he saw me, passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Well, a good Samaritan. It's a common phrase, gets thrown around for someone who's done a good deed. Even people who maybe never even read the story, haven't even read the Bible, know what a good Samaritan means. And as with everything else in our culture, of course there's a day. March 13th is Good Samaritan Day. Because of course Jesus was trying to establish one day in which you did good deeds. Uh, not at all. But as we come to this story, we come to a story that's really well known, at least broadly. Oh yeah, we should be good Samaritans. But as we look at it, we're going to find that though we claim to love this story, in it, Jesus is demanding and calling us to a lifestyle that's often much more than we really want to give. As we look at this story, we're really going to see three things. First, that love is a revelation of our eternal destiny. Next, that love involves even our enemies. And then lastly, that love is a stolen, abused, and forsaken command. But diving into the story, if you look at verse 25, it begins with a lawyer standing up to put him to the test. Now, right to understand, a lawyer is not someone who has taken the LSAT, gone to law school, and then passed bar exams. This is someone who is a knowledgeable person in the Old Testament scriptures. And notice what he calls Jesus. He goes up to him and says, Teacher, you know, externally, this lawyer has all the appearance of respecting and honoring Jesus. And yet internally, he's questioning. He doesn't want to do what Jesus says. And sadly, that can often be the case for us. Externally, we praise Jesus. We may even go to church, but internally, we're skeptics. We're always questioning. We're always wondering. We always want to catch Jesus or the pastor or whoever in a mistake. We're not really wanting to honor and follow Jesus. But here, the lawyer, he asks a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he thinks in this question, he'll trip Jesus up. But Jesus just puts the question back to him. Well, what do the scriptures say? You're supposed to be the expert in the law, so tell me, Mr. Expert, what do they say? And notice something in this. In this, Jesus is implicitly saying, well, the law is authoritative. God has given us his law 
by which we should understand how we should live and how we have eternal life. You know, from time to time, you may come across people who say, well, I really love Jesus, and I want to follow what he says, but the rest of the Bible, I don't really agree with that. Except Jesus' teachings, to follow Jesus is to look at the Old Testament as authoritative. That's part of Jesus' teachings. You can't just say, I want to follow Jesus, but then deny what Jesus told you to follow. Well, the lawyer replies, verse 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Well, basically, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5. It's called the Shema because it begins, Hear, O Israel, and the word hear is the Hebrew word for Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. This was what pious Jews would quote twice a day. Every Jew would have agreed, well, that's, that's it. You should love God with your whole being. You must be devoted with everything that is about you. Mind, soul, heart, strength. Our soul finds its joy, its rest in God alone. But along with that, he adds Leviticus 19.6. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, even another time, Jesus, he quotes these as the two greatest commandments. In other words... Eternal life is revealed in the tangible and practical deeds of love for God and neighbor. And so Jesus replies in verse 28, You've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. You know, you've answered correctly or truly is the word orthos. And you may hear that root and all of a sudden your mind connects other words. Orthodox teaching, straight teaching, or an orthopedic surgeon. Someone who sets straight or correct your bones. Or orthodontist. Someone who sets straight your teeth. So Jesus says, you've answered straight. You've answered correct or true. And then he says, do this and you'll live. Now I wonder if for some of you, you're going, well, wait, hold on. I've read Doctrine 101. I, I know the basics of how you're saved. That's actually not it, Jesus. That's, that's not it. You may or may not know three years ago is when we first came, and maybe I was in the fellowship hall, and you're asking questions, and someone goes, well, Jeremy, you're going to be the pastor. What should someone do if they want to have eternal life? And if I said, well, they just have to love God with all their being and love their neighbor, and they'll be saved, I'm guessing some people would be looking at each other going, whoa, what, what's going on? That's like works. We can't have this guy. Jeremy, isn't it about faith? Isn't it about trusting Jesus? Why are you talking about what you should do? Is Jesus not understanding how we have eternal life? Well, the problem is not with Jesus or his answer. It's rather, we're not understanding what's going on in the story, and we don't always grasp how faith works. In regards to this story, this lawyer is a picture of what Jesus just explained. Look up at Luke chapter 10, verse 21. There it says, In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. This lawyer is one of those know-it-all, the supposedly wise, who thinks he has all the answers. And yet, it's going to be shown he doesn't. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to humble him. He wants him to realize, I need to be like one of those children. Not coming Jesus testing him, but coming to Jesus to learn, to rejoice in him. Now, all that is not to say that Jesus or the lawyer are misspeaking. Rather, it's true. If you perfectly love God, if you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and you perfectly love your neighbors yourself, well, you'll have eternal life. But there's a slight problem. 
None of us can do that. And if any of us is honest, if this lawyer was honest, and we'll see in a minute he is a little bit honest with himself, he realizes, I can't do that. And he should have been humbled to go, I can't. I can't do that perfectly all the time. Maybe in a rare glimpse, I've had a moment of loving God perfectly and my neighbor, but most of the time, not at all. And it should have driven him to realize he couldn't. But that's why Jesus came. He came to be the perfect person who loved God always, perfectly. He came to love neighbor perfectly, and he did. Not only did he do that, he then died for us who don't love perfectly, taking our punishment so that we might have life. And once we've come to know and trust Jesus, then we have the eternal life they're talking about. Before Jesus was betrayed and condemned, the night before he gathered his disciples, and in that time he prayed, and in John 17 he prayed these words. It says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So yes, Jesus knows eternal life has always been and always will be a gift to us. Because none of us can reach eternal life by the standard of perfect love. In fact, our only hope is to cry out and admit we can't do that. And yet, over and over, the Bible says once we've come to know God, once we've come to have eternal life, that will always spill out of our lives in love towards others. And thus, Jesus doesn't mention faith because the faith is going to be seen by works. We've seen that already. Flip back to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 41. And as you're turning there, I'll just kind of remind you of the context. A Pharisee named Simon has invited Jesus over for an open dinner party. And at this open dinner party, in comes a woman who's described as a sinner. Someone who in the town everyone would have known was a sinner. Maybe a prostitute. We're not told specifically. Well, nonetheless, she comes in. She's weeping at Jesus' feet. And as she's showing this deep devotion and love, Simon is deeply disgusted. He's thinking, if Jesus were really a religious person, if he really were a prophet... He would never allow such a sinful woman to not even just come close, but to touch him, weep on his feet, wipe with his hair. That's gross. And yet Jesus says these words in Luke 7, beginning in verse 41. It says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Why did Jesus say her sins are forgiven? Because she loved so much. But then notice, look down at verse 50. It wraps up and Jesus says to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, which is it? Is she saved because she had all this love and devotion to God? Or was she saved? Had her sins forgiven? Because she had faith. And the answer is, 
Yes, the faith always leads to works. So if you don't see any love, then there's not any real faith. And this is over and over. You know, the Apostle Paul is probably the clearest in explaining that we're saved by faith alone, and yet he in Galatians 5, 6 writes, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Paul says faith has to work through love, or James 2.17. So also faith, if it does not have works, we could say works of love, is dead. Or we read earlier, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. You couldn't say it any stronger. If there is no love, then that is the evidence that you don't truly know God, that you don't truly have faith in Him. Your love for God is not merely warm feelings. It's not sentimentalism. And loving God is not just some abstract idea. It's always shown in loving the people before us. Thus, if we truly have faith, it will always reveal itself, Jesus is saying, in love. And so we have to ask ourselves, if our life were examined, would the radical love that Jesus is talking about be so clear that people would say, oh, they have faith in Jesus. It's so obvious because I just see the way they love people who no one else could ever love. You know, is your love for God all-consuming? You know, if we're honest, none of us reaches that standard. And yet, that's the beauty of the gospel. It then calls us to humble ourselves and admit that he's reached down to love people like us. And then as we know his love for people who have known the truth and yet not always followed it, we are reignited in our love for a God who would love us even still and sends us out for more love to others. Well, we can either really do two things. We can see this unachievable standard and go, well, I'm never going to reach that. So I have to humble myself and cry out for mercy. Or... We can say, well, I know this is the standard, but maybe we should bring the standard down here. And that's what the lawyer attempts to do, because notice what he does next in verse 29. We see that he tries to justify himself, and that leads to our next section, that love involves even our enemies. Because the lawyer says, well, who is my neighbor? Now, for Jews at that time, the answer was real clear, because when he quoted you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That was from Leviticus 19.18. Or right before that in Leviticus 19.18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Then it concludes with, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so they said, Oh, well, the second part, love your neighbor as yourself, is tied to the first. That you shall not do any Vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. So we're supposed to love those like us. We're supposed to love the Jews. And yet, something about Jesus' statements or questions makes the lawyer realize or maybe be nervous. Maybe this means a little bit more than we've always taught. And so he asks, well, who is my neighbor? And it's not just this lawyer who seeks to evade this. Even today, we can seek to evade this. Well, how do we do that? Well, we don't really ask so much who is our neighbor, though we do that some. We focus more on the, well, as yourself. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard. It's the mantra of our day. Well, look, before you can go love anyone else, 
Who do you need to love? Yourself. You gotta fill your love tank. And then when your love tank is full, then you'll overflow. And then even some Christians will take verses like this and say, look, Jesus even commands us to love ourselves. Well, look again at verse 27. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. So that's a command. And you shall love your neighbor. That's a command. But as yourself is not the command. That's a comparison in the command. It's just a statement. It's an assumption. Jesus is assuming that we all already love ourselves. Now we need to be clear here. Jesus is not talking about self-esteem. He's not talking about you should like the way your hair looks or you should like your body size or you should like your life. Though those are things we could talk about in another context. Jesus is talking about here that all of us, we all have a desire to remove misery in our life and increase joy. And we all do this. We all are pursuing this. Even the person who does the most extreme and attempts suicide is saying, look, life's so bad, it's going to be better if I'm not here. They're trying to make it better. And Jesus is saying, look, the same thought, the same energy, the same devotion you have to making your life better, do that for other people. And yet I think that often when we have this fill up your love tank language, we're using it as an excuse for why we don't really need to love others because we need to spend a little bit more time on ourselves first. We need to take care of us. And we use that as a way to kind of brush aside these commands to love others so radically. And yet Jesus wants to cut against all these excuses. And so he tells this parable. A man, presumably a Jew, goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now down was literal because Jerusalem sits at about 2,500 feet above sea level. And Jericho sits about 800 feet below sea level. And the road that goes from the mountain down to the valley is about 17 miles long. And it winds back and forth in between rocky regions and places with caves. And this road was so dangerous, it was known as the Bloody Way. For centuries before Christ and centuries after, robbers would use this as an area to attack. Because they could get someone, because they couldn't see far ahead around the windy path. And then once they robbed them, they could go back to one of the many caves where they hid. Well, this man has that situation. He's going along and a band of robbers, they come and they take his money. But not just that. They strip him of clothing, they beat him, and then they just leave him there to die. But as luck would have it, Jesus says by chance, look, it's okay because a priest is coming down the road. And so this is wonderful news. Yes, this man had a bad turn of events, but... Surely this holy man, the man who's devoted his life to serving God, he knows that he's supposed to love God with all and love his neighbors himself. So he's going to take care of this man. But no. He passes over, not even to get close to this man, to go on the other side. Now some will say, well, the priest was just wanting to maintain his ritual purity. Well, that would make sense if he was going from Jericho to Jerusalem, but he's actually traveling the other way. Well, maybe the priest won't, but good news, here comes a Levite, a member of the tribe of Israel who is specifically dedicated to serving God by helping the priest. Help is on the way. But no, again, the Levite passes on the other side. Once he sees the man, he wants nothing to do with him. Jesus then throws a curveball, fastball, spitter, and knuckleball, if you can do that all together, in one. Because he says, 
a Samaritan. Now that's the first word. It's the word that's supposed to grab their attention. And for them, this was outrageous. You know, they probably were thinking, okay, Jesus is giving an anti-clerical sermon. Yeah, the religious leaders, they're not doing what they're supposed to. But he's going to tell us a Jew, yes, you don't need to be part of the priestly profession to love God. We get it, Jesus. That's understandable. But this is unthinkable. A Samaritan? You know, the Jews hated Samaritans. And the Samaritans hated Jews. And this has gone on for centuries. The Samaritans were racially different because they were half-breeds. They intermarried with Gentiles. They were theologically, religiously different because they said, well, look, you only need to observe the first five books of the Old Testament. You need to worship on Mount Gerizim, not on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so the Samaritans, the Jewish writing said, to even eat with one is as bad as eating pork. And no one could stand them. They would even travel around their cities just to not even walk through them. And that Jesus mentions a Samaritan is unthinkable. Not only does Jesus mention them, but then he says the Samaritan sees the man and he has compassion on him. And the word used is the word that describes Jesus' emotional response when he walks into the city of Nain in Luke chapter 5. And he sees the widow bringing out her only son to take him to the cemetery. And Jesus had compassion. What did he do? That led him to action, to bringing the son back to life. Well, here, the Samaritan has that deep compassion that leads to action. So he pours oil to soothe the wounds. He pours wine on to disinfect them. He wraps them up. He puts the man on his animal and then takes them, takes the man to an inn. Then, when he takes them there, he gives the innkeeper two denarii. Now, a denarii was a day's wage, so I don't know whatever you make, but take whatever you make on a daily average and multiply by two, and that much money he gave to the innkeeper. And then he said, look, if there's anything else, I'll pay you when I come back. Now remember, this was probably done for someone who hated him. This was done for someone he never met. And probably to do this put his own life at danger. It really, Jesus is illustrating what he told back in Luke chapter 6. Flip back to Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 36. Because there Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So thus, the lawyers, the answer to the lawyer's question of who is my neighbor is anyone who's in need. No matter their race, no matter their animosity towards you, no matter their gender, no matter their smell, no matter their surroundings, anyone in need is your neighbor. You know, and Jesus' command here is quite radical because we're able, humanly, to love those who love us. We're able to love those who make our life better. It's much harder, actually it's impossible without divine help, to love those who hate us and who are unlike us. And love 
It's, again, not just a feeling. Love is compassion that leads to action. It's both. There's a lot of action in the world doing, quote-unquote, good for others, while we look down our nose and say, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like them. Well, that's not love. There's a lot of emotions that feel bad for people that never takes any actions to do anything. Love is compassion mixed with action. So then Jesus puts the question back to the lawyer. He says, which of the three do you think was a neighbor? You know, the way Jesus asked this, he turns the whole question around. The question is not any longer, who is my neighbor? It's, for whom can I be a neighbor? In other words, don't narrow down who you have to love. Broaden who you can love, should love. But notice something very interesting, verse 37, our last verse. What would be the most natural thing for the lawyer to say? What would be... The Samaritan. But notice what he says instead. The one who showed mercy. He can't even get himself to say the word Samaritan. And Jesus' story should have, hopefully has, though it has clearly not yet, humbled this lawyer to realize, I don't love everyone as I love myself. There's some that I hate. I can't even get myself to say their name. But then Jesus says, go and do Likewise, you know, the life that pleases God is not merely one of belief, but rather belief that leads to actions. In other words, it's a faith that works, specifically working in deeds of love. You know, faith is more than just agreeing with some fact like, well, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. It's shown in your actions. You know, over and over, the Bible calls us to test ourselves. Examine yourselves. Do you really have this type of faith? Or are we like the lawyer? Externally, we know all the right things to say. We say, Jesus is a good teacher. And yet our heart is far from him. And Jesus' story is showing us that this is evidenced by our love. And people, when they back up, when they don't dive into the story, they go, oh, this is great. We love this. Yes, we should love one another. And yet I think, sadly, we have to conclude with this command, this truth that love should be done for all is a stolen, abused, and forsaken command. Well, how in the world is love stolen? Well, it's stolen because many people will deny most or all other truths of Christ or Christianity, and yet they still say, well, we should still love our neighbors ourselves. That's good. We should hold on to that one little kernel of Jesus' teaching. Tom Holland was a man who was like this. He grew up in the church, and yet as he became an adult, he began to think, well, Christianity, that's just kind of a backwoods, superstitious religion. I don't really believe that. I'm tied to facts. I believe what is real, what I can see, touch, feel. You know, my morals, these good morals, they've always existed. I love the classics. I get the same things from there. And yet as he started reading more and more of the classics, he came across people like a great Spartan leader who trained his young men to kill the upper classes that he hated at night. He came across Caesar who just went and killed a million Gauls and then enslaved a million more. And it wasn't just that, Tom Holland writes, it was not just the extremes of callousness that I came to find shocking, but the lack of a sense that the poor or weak might have any intrinsic value. He goes on 
in his article to tell of how when the Enlightenment came, when we were so supposedly enlightened, that many of the thinkers went away from Christianity and said, well, yes, we should still love one another, but we don't, we don't need Christianity for that. We don't believe any of that. And as an example, he quotes Voltaire, the famous French writer who wrote, every sensible man, every honorable man, must hold the Christianity religion in horror. You, know, you must despise, hate Christianity. And Voltaire, he tried to build his own ethical principles. Again, classical literature, maybe some Chinese philosophy, our own powers of reason. And yet Holland again writes, Yet Voltaire, in his concern for the weak and oppressed, was marked more enduringly by the stamp of biblical ethics than he dared to admit. Tom Holland write, wraps up his article by writing, Familiarity with the biblical narrative of the crucifixion has dulled our sense of just how completely novel a deity Christ was. In the ancient world, it was the role of the gods who laid claim to ruling the universe to uphold his power by inflicting punishment, not to suffer it themselves. Today, even as a belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two millennia old revolution that Christianity represents. It is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies still take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why, in general, we assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. And this is the, what we hear today. People today who despise anything to do with Christianity will still say, well, you should follow Jesus' command to love one another. That's what we should do. Parable of the Samaritan. That's what we should do. And yet, this is nothing more than stealing. But not only is it stealing, if you go only with this one principle and don't see the rest of the story, it won't be followed. You know, the only solid basis for loving others as Jesus commanded us, even the weak, even those who hate us, is because Jesus is the type of God who came and did that himself, who came and died for the weak, who came and died for those who hated him. That's why as today, on the lips of almost everyone is love, we see such viciousness, such ugliness, such outright hatred for those who disagree with us in our country. Without a lasting and deep motivation to obey this command, it will be stolen and ultimately not followed. Rather, we just follow what was natural for Jesus' day and natural for ours. And that is to only love those who are like us. To love those who make our life better. Not to love those who hate us. Not to love those who are our enemies. Sadly, this command is not only stolen, though, it's also abused. You know, people claim, well, look, Jesus says love, and love is unconditional. So we have to love and accept anyone, no matter how they are. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Love is not the same thing as let. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus often, in love, calls people to change. Even this lawyer here, he's calling him to change. He's saying what is going on in your life is not right. As well, this story is abused when it's seen as like a political manifesto, giving us the rubber stamp, the final word on how we should view something such as immigration as a country. 
You know, does this passage have something to say how we should think of foreigners? Well, definitely it should. However, does this story mean we should have open borders? Um, that's not what Jesus is talking about at all. You know, God has given us responsibilities as individuals, as families, as a church, as a government. Each of us has responsibilities, but each of those can be different and distinct. And to take a story that Jesus uses to humble a man about how he should individually love and then say that is the clear understanding that we should have a political message of opening our borders is really to have used no interpretive method of any text. That's not what the story is about at all. Yes, this implication has, this story has implications, but this story is not the end all of how we should view an issue such as immigration. And so the story can be abused. Yet worse than being stolen or abused is when this command is basically just forsaken. It's when we become the type of people who become experts in noting how this story is stolen and abused. When we can say, well, that's not actually what we need to love. Let me clarify what love means. And we know exactly everything that the Bible says, and we basically have become the lawyer in the story. We are people who know all about the law, but we don't love the giver of the laws. And that's really the problem of the Pharisee, the lawyer here. And Jesus wants that man and us to realize that the radical nature of his commands is more than we could ever do in and of ourselves. That we have to humble ourselves and follow him. And so we have to ask, have our lives been gripped by this amazing God? You know, that is what is going to motivate us to live out commands like this. It's not moralistic preaching. It's not guilt about how I don't love enough, i got to go love more. That is not going to give you the energy, the fuel, so to speak, to continue your love even for those who hate you. Rather, it's when it, we realize we are the down and out people that God came down to love. That he loved people like us. That's when we'll be motivated. You know, there's a big difference in this story and who we are in this story because the man who was robbed was seemingly robbed for no fault of his own. But we are down on the road completely due to our own fault, due to our own sin. Tim Keller writes, When a Christian sees prostitutes, alcoholics, prisoners, drug addicts, unwed mothers, the homeless, the refugees, he knows that he's looking in a mirror. Perhaps you spent all your life in a respectable middle-class home. No matter. Spiritually, we are just like these people. Though physically and socially we never were where they are now, they are outcast. I was an outcast. You know, if all this is a good story, a nice moral, but Jesus isn't really God in the flesh who came for rebel outcasts like us, then there's really no reason to follow it. In fact, when radical love is called of us, we won't follow it. It's only as we're gripped by the love of God for us in Christ, will we want to reach out with this same love for others? You know, the Samaritan's love was costly. It meant risking his life. Because the robbers, they could return at any time. It cost him his money. He paid quite a sum. And all this for someone he never met. Now, for us, the greatest cost of love might not be financial. It might not be anything like that. 
It might be ours as Americans' greatest treasures, our privacy and our control over our lives. Because to love people, you have to get to know them. And to get to know them, you have to let them get to know you. And that means you have to do crazy things like talk to them and invite them into your homes and tell them what's going on in your life so they'll tell you what's going on in their life. And so we have to ask ourselves tough questions like is our residence, is that a little castle that we guard that no one can ever enter? Or is our residence a place for hospitality where Christian love gets shown? Is our money, is that to meet our needs and desires, or is it spent freely, lavishly on the needs of others? If we have free time, do we go, who can I spend time with? Or do we go, what else can I do for myself today? Now, the applications of this are legion. And so the way this is going to work out in all of our lives is going to look various and different. So I can't say, well, this is what it looks like for you or you. God must work with you. What does that look like? For you and your stage of life, you and your finances, you and your money. Yet, the question is, in your life, has the love of God rebounded off so that you are a reflection to those around you of His deep and costly love for you? You know, May that be our goal, that we are a reflection of God's love for us. Let's pray. Lord, that is our desire as your image bearers, that we would be a clear image, a clear reflection of you to this world. Lord, that the invisible God might be seen by our lives individually and by our lives corporately, that we as a church would have lives of love that people, as they are in our midst, would even say, God must be amongst this people. Lord, would you let your light shine clearly through us. Work in us a deep love of you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.